Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. I'm going to draw your attention to a section of Scripture in Ephesians, which is part of a prayer that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church for them, but also it has application to the church all around the world, it seems to me. Because the the breadth of the prayer is really, really broad, but absolutely essential. So from Ephesians, the third chapter, beginning in the 20th verse, follow along with me, if you would, please. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This prayer, that through him, he would be glorified in the church throughout all generations. We just spent a very meaningful time of prayer for the children of Willard Church of the Nazarene. Paul's focus was that God would be glorified in every generation, from the youngest to the oldest, in the church. For God to be glorified simply means for the church, effectively, deliberately, purposely, on purpose, every generation draw attention to who God is, to what he has done. So when you were worshiping today and sharing prayer requests and praying together for one another, you're helping to draw attention to who God is and who he seeks to be in our life and what he seeks to do in us. When we were singing songs like, change my heart, oh God, we're drawing attention to him. He's the only one who can deal with the heart of a person. So Paul's prayer for the church is, is rooted in a heart that is concerned for the sake of the kingdom all around the world, that God would be honored in our lives and through our lives together, corporately, that we would draw attention to him, bring honor to his name, glorify God in the church. But this is not the only section of scripture that Paul speaks about the church. And so today I want to share three aspects, three word pictures that Paul uses to draw attention to the church and how the church serving together draws attention to God brings glory to him. And then at the close, to introduce you to an an individual that Paul writes about. He's a rather obscure individual, but his makeup and his impact on Paul's life and on the life of the church is really important. First of all, Paul writes about the church as a family. The household of faith. When he writes to Timothy, he writes to him about how he and those who follow Christ 
would be behaving and how we would interact with one another in the household of God or in God's family. What's it like to relate to one another? What is the family like? Well, obviously, the general purpose of a family, of a household, is the loving nurture of the next generation. And every family, every healthy family, every wholesome family, the parents set their own concerns and their own desires, their own rights aside for the sake of their children. You know that. You have children. You understand without hesitation that you lay down your life for them. In fact, a, a mother lays down her life just to give birth to a child. It's a stunning, miraculous thing. The church as a family bears witness to the fact that we as a body of people take the spiritual birth and nurture of the next generation to be the most compelling calling on our life. So in the household of faith, when we're making decisions and we're engaged in the life of instruction and guidance and recruiting and events and all of that kind of thing, the first question we want to ask, how does this help the next generation? How does this speak the gospel into their lives, into their heart, into their mind? The makeup of a family engages the next generation. But it also does not ignore those who are older and understand their role and connection in the life of the entire household and family. My privilege to be in a very, very part-time staff relationship with Finley First Church of the Nazarene. I'm the oldest member of the staff. And I, they have an outstanding full-time staff, and there are a few of us who are part-time, and I'm the oldest. And so I've just kind of dubbed myself as old guy. So when I talk to the secretary on the phone, I say, old guy calling just have a question or I've got some information I know you need for the calendar and that type of thing. It's a privilege to connect with the older set in the life of that congregation. Delightful to know them, delightful to interact with them and care about them and care for them and to sense how they care for one another, but always to draw attention to the fact that one of these days, My service here on earth is going to be over and the Lord's going to call me home. I'm going to leave this world. What have I done for the sake of those who will come behind me? The church also draws attention to God by speaking the truth into the lives of teenagers. Not just children and not just older folks, but teenagers. I served for a period of time as a youth pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. Delightful experience, wonderful lead pastor, and outstanding staff other than me involved in the life of that church. I just really enjoyed being youth pastor. It was especially important, it seemed to me, for teenagers to hear the truth. To have someone speak into their life the truth, not only about the Bible, but about every relationship in life. 
in these days, when we have very few opportunities to, to minister directly and to teach and communicate in the public school system, we need to take advantage of every opportunity that we have in the lives of young people. And the church is a pivotal part of that. So the church as a family embraces every generation and in so doing speaking the truth to every person who is a part of our connection and fellowship and praying that God would grant us the privilege of enlarging that and reaching out into the lives of others of every generation. I've been at this for a while. And I've seen some of the fallacies that arise in generational things. I've listened to young people who were 27 years old who say, I don't really have, they don't really have much to say to me because they're over 30. And my thinking is, if you're fortunate to live, you're going to be over 30 in just a very little while. And then when they're in their 30s, they say, well, they're, they don't really have much to say to me because they're over 40. That kind of generational disregard is one of the most unhealthy things that can happen in any household and family. For every generation to listen to the other and to hear clearly what they have to say is absolutely vital. So when Paul wrote about the church as a family, he was writing about the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every person at every age in our life. And it is ours to walk with him and serve him. And the privilege of knowing God and walking with him for a period of time gives us opportunity to speak into the lives of others, no matter what their age. I mentioned being a youth pastor. I was teaching in, um, in one setting from Acts chapter 2. In the miraculous gift of speaking languages that the disciples had never learned. This all took place on when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. And the record for that is in Acts chapter 2. Teaching on that section of scripture was just talking about the fact that here we have 12 disciples plus those who had joined with them around 120 people in that upper room and the Holy Spirit came on them in power and gifted them in that moment with the ability to speak languages to preach the gospel to communicate the love of God in languages that they had never learned and I was teaching a group of adults and one of the ladies asked the question so what other language are you learning? And I just kind of quipped. I said, right now, I'm trying really hard to learn how to speak teenager ease. <laughs> it would be a wonderful thing if in the body of believers, our heart would be for the ability to hear every generation and to speak in such a way that we connect with everyone. God help us to have a heart of unity and concern for people of every 
age, the household of faith. And when the church functions as a healthy family, God is glorified. Attention is drawn to him. And his provision for us in Christ takes center stage, makes a profound impact on the world in which we live. But Paul also wrote about the church as a body. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, so much of what Paul wrote to the church there had to do with the function of the church. And he wrote about the church as though it was a physical body. Christ as the head and each of us as members of his body. While the purpose of a family is the loving nurture of the next generation, of every generation. The purpose of a body is to do what the head says to do. When our, when our brain tells our left hand to move, then we expect our left hand and left arm to move. When our brain tells our right arm to move and our right hand to move, we expect our right arm and right hand to move. The purpose of the body is to do the will of the head, to function, to serve, to do what the head says to do. Now, the apostle writing to the church in Corinth said, you are a part of the body of Christ. And in that section of scripture, he wrote about the fact that each person is given a gift, at least one, some, uh, some more than one. But every person that is in Christ is given a gift by the Holy Spirit that is to be used at the beckoning of the head to serve everyone around them. So the church doing things, serving together, reading this morning in your bulletin about the calendar. One thing after another coming up and going on, you're talking about grief share and the significance of that ministry in your life. That takes an engagement of a lot of people, certainly in prayer, but also in facilitating and understanding the significance of that process in the lives of hurting and broken people. Serving, doing what God wants us to do brings honor and glory to him. Now, a family is a healthy, wholesome thing. Generally speaking, when you hear somebody talk about family, you want to smile and say, well, that's a wonderful thing. That's appealing to most everybody. Doing, however, may be a bit different. But the apostle says, everyone who is in Christ has been given a gift. You have been entrusted with an ability that God expects you to put to work for his sake, for his honor and his glory. They mentioned some of those, the gift of mercy and the gift of healing, the gift of exhortation, the gift of encouragement, the gift of administration and organization, all of those things the apostle writes about to the church at Corinth. When God's people acknowledge the fact that he has given us certain abilities and says to him, I will do what you want me to do with what you've given me. God is honored 
and glorified in the life of the church when those who are given a gift use that gift as he gives direction and leadership. I want to encourage you today. I suspect that in this place, most of you have read and studied and you've been given good instruction by your pastor. You have a very good handle on what your abilities and gifts are, what your life has shaped you to do and to be, what your personality is like, what it is that drives you and helps you to connect with others around you. So you know what your gifts are. God has helped you to see and come to understand that. It is his will for you and for me to put to work the things that he has entrusted into us. And when the church does what it's gifted to do, God is honored and glorified. The church as a body has to do with doing, serving, accomplishing a task that God has set before us. The church as a family is primarily about relationships. The church as a body is primarily about function, getting a particular job done. But Paul also wrote about the church as an army. He speaks about that often. In Ephesians, Paul wrote to the church there, and he said to them, you put on the full armor of God. Dress up for warfare. And he describes that armor And he says to them, you take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That whole section of scripture is interesting in that there's not one bit of armor for our back. You know why that is? It's many have suggested that it's because we're never supposed to be in retreat. And I believe that's true. But at, at the same time, our enemy doesn't always come at us from the front either. He's sneaky. The reason there is no armor for our back is because the soldiers were supposed to fight in pairs and fight back to back. So one was protecting the back of the other all the time. You study Roman military tactics and Roman military practice, you learn that they would actually fight in groups And they would bunch together those in the front with their shield in front of them. Those behind them would put their shield over top. And it was like that as they fought most of the time in ranks of 10 or 20. And those in the back would put their shield behind them and walk backwards. And those on the side would put their shields to the side. So they would move forward as a block of people. Our modern day warfare with tanks is patterned after that function. You are to be in battle. We are called upon to be a part of, the, of an approach for the sake of God and his kingdom that understands this is a fight. The purpose of an army is to accomplish a mission in hostile territory. If there's ever been a time when it was hostile for the church in the United States of America, it's today. We're facing difficulty and challenge on every front around us. 
And the apostle says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are in this world and we wage war. But we do not wage war like the world rages war. We wage war with the weapons of God, which are prayer and truth that breaks down strongholds, that speaks to the falsehood that is being shoveled at us all the time in the culture in which we live. This is a battle. And Paul said the church is like an army. So put on the full armor of God. Go to battle. We sing a song from time to time that says, When I fight, I will fight on my knees. Our, our weapons are not the weapons of this world. I believe without question that we need to be engaged in the political world, in our culture. We need to vote. We need to analyze. We need to understand the stuff that's going on in our world. But our primary weapon in the fight against the evil in our culture is to be before God broken and interceding on behalf of our nation. We need a miracle. We need several miracles. And we need at the root of that for the people of God to understand that I'm doing battle. When I go on my knees before God, I'm interceding for my nation. I'm in, I'm in the fight of my life for the sake of the kingdom. The purpose of an army is to accomplish a mission in hostile territory. The purpose of a body is to do what the head says. The purpose of a family is the loving nurture of every generation. And interestingly, Paul writes about one person that is, as I said earlier, a bit obscure, but nonetheless, a vital lesson. And hear how he describes this man. This is in Philippians, the second chapter. I think it necessary, Paul writes, to send back to you Epaphroditus. And then he describes Epaphroditus this way. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. He's a member of my family. We serve together and we fight together. All wrapped up in one man, all three aspects of the life of the church that brings honor and glory to God. Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow servant, my fellow soldier. Now, I told you that I have two daughters. Because of that, and, and they're both married, because of that fact, I'm well acquainted with audacity. I have two sons-in-law. 
And they both had the audacity to sit across the table from me and ask if they could marry my daughter. I remember sitting there thinking about both of them. And they're both outstanding guys. They're just outstanding in every way. But they are audacious, I'll tell you. Can you imagine some guy thinking he's worthy to be husband to your daughter? It's it's just beyond me. So I, I just want you to know I'm well acquainted with audacity. And so when I say what I'm going to say, I know it sounds audacious, but it's the truth. I know what Willard Church of the Nazarene needs. Sound audacious enough to you? I know you need some folks who will say, I'll be like Epaphroditus. I love the church as a family. And I love the church as a servant community. I love the church as an army. I'll go to battle with my brothers and sisters. I'll serve with my brothers and sisters. And I'll love on every generation. I will be like Epaphroditus. I know what this church needs. You do too. It's you. It's you saying, yes, Lord, I'll be a part of the whole thing. Because I want to bring honor and glory to you. So on this Sunday morning, let's bring honor and glory to God in the church, through the church, into the world in which we live. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we read your word and see the tremendous way in which you bless the lives of people who came out of the darkness of being lost and broken how you redeemed them and set them on a completely different path, and how you formed the church to bring honor to your name in a hostile world. We believe that you've done that today. In Willard Church of the Nazarene, you have set apart a group of people who are here to seek to honor you, to love you, to love one another, to serve together, to pray together, to intercede for the broken world in which we live. I pray for them. I believe you for your hand of blessing upon this local congregation, upon their pastor James and his family. Bless and prosper their time away. And when they return, bless and prosper their ministry in the life of this body of people. Strengthen them, I pray. As a, as a congregation to bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you folks.
Have a wonderful Lord's Day afternoon.